So over the next couple of weeks, we, as we were planning the program, the, the, this Sunday and next Sunday were what I call occasional Sundays, which means that we don't have a series and you can really talk about what you want to talk about. And uh, as I came to prepare, I kind of think, what will I do for this Sunday? Because I really can do anything. I kind of realized that we had skewed Nehemiah a little bit. Because we did what everybody else does with Nehemiah, which is last week, I don't know if you heard Rosie preach, but we ended up with the celebration and the success and everything was brilliant. The walls were rebuilt. Jerusalem was again the place of worship of God. People were returning. It was brilliant. Everything was great. Nehemiah is the model of leadership and successful leadership. The only problem with that is chapter 13. And, and as I sat down to think about this week, I thought, we need to do chapter 13. And, and, and recognize that despite that amazing story, that, that, that story of Nehemiah coming and mobilizing the people of God to realize this goal, that actually Nehemiah's role was ultimately a failure. And that's what chapter 13 tells us. That's why we forget about it, because we don't like focusing on this. So I'm going to call this week's sermon, Nehemiah's Disappointment, as we consider what happened in relation to Nehemiah and his mission. It appears that after Nehemiah had seen the restoration of the walls of Jerusalem and they had had the celebrations, he went back to the court of the Persian king. And, and life would have been good for Nehemiah in the court of the Persian king. And, and we're told that as Nehemiah was there, he reached, it, it, the phrase is, it, it's translated in our English translations as after some time. But, but it actually means he had kind of got to the end of his life. He had kind of got to the last points. He had lived his life. And, and in Persia, he was probably sitting back thinking of his accomplishments in terms of Jerusalem and everything. And he thought he would go and take one last trip to Jerusalem and see his legacy. And so it was a sort of nostalgic trip. And he traveled all the way from the Persian court to Jerusalem, expecting to see this incredible legacy of the temple thriving, the people of God worshiping, and Jerusalem being restored to where it should be. And he arrives... And what he sees is horrific. His legacy is gone. Everything he had worked to for was in ashes. And he had to deal with what he was seeing. We're, we're told that um, the temple, uh, the high priest, had set up one of the storerooms for Tobiah. Now, as I was looking at this, I uh, was sort of exploring who is Tobiah, and uh, he's, he's mentioned earlier in Nehemiah. And, and I think Tobiah may have been a, uh, an administrator, an Amorite administrator, but I actually suspect that he's an Amorite god. So, so what's actually being said here is that the high priest has candied the temple for Yahweh to, to Tobiah and the worship 
of a foreign and alien God. Even if Tobiah wasn't a God, certainly that's the inference that this storeroom was now handed over to him. In other words, all the things that Nehemiah had worked to establish for the worship of God was now being attributed and given to another God. Everything was being enjoyed by the, the exact thing that Nehemiah had fought against and tried to deal with. And, and so he's just horrified when he sees that this storeroom, which, which represents where the resources of the temple were being given, they were being given to this false and idolatrous worship. And the high priest is colluding with this. He sees not only that the temple is defiled, we can go to the situation, by the way. Thanks, Scott. Uh, the temple's defiled, but, but there's a neglecting of the tithes and offerings. Keep going. <laughs> uh, one more. <laughs> Thanks. There's a neglecting of the tithes and offerings. And, and uh, that not only had the resources that were there that he had built up and created were now employed in relation to a foreign god, but actually the resources that should have been there for the people of God, and particularly the worship of Yahweh, were now being neglected. And this had created a massive issue for the whole Levitical and priestly class. And they'd gone back to their fields because the worship of God was no longer being sustained in Jerusalem. And, and so they had to find some way of living, and they had to go and farm. So there was no worship of God taking place. He then saw that the people violated the Sabbath. In other words, they no longer made space in their life for the worship of Yahweh. And they were intermarrying, which meant that they were losing their identity as the people of God. Nehemiah's legacy. Most successful leader in the Old Testament the model, and remember I started this series by showing you all those books. If you type on Amazon and check Nehemiah Leadership, you'll see them. This is horrific. And, and, and one can only imagine what it must have been for Nehemiah as he looked at this and he realized that this was his legacy. It must have been incredibly disappointing. And, and I guess if it was you or me, maybe he could have just said, well, I'll put that down to experience and I'm back off to Persia to enjoy my good life there. You know, but he didn't do that. Despite the disappointment, despite the frustration, despite everything that he was confronted with, he maintained individual faithfulness. See, one of the, the great truths of the Bible is God does not call his people to be successful. He calls them to be faithful. I mean, think about Jesus. I, I mean, Jesus' ministry, certainly on the night of the crucifixion, was not looking good. It was pretty desperate. Deserted by all his, not only the crowds, but all of his disciples. Nothing to show for three years of ministry. There was no future record or anything in, in the offing. 
Everything looked like it had gone. And yet Jesus was faithful. You'll see this reiterated over and over again in the New Testament. Jesus remained faithful to the task. Nehemiah, as he was confronted with this, remained faithful. Paul says it in 2 Timothy, doesn't he? I've run the race. I've stayed faithful. And he says, you know, I know that there are going to come erroneous teachings into the church. I know that in the future, people are going to follow these erroneous church teachings and that all the work that we've been doing is going to be under threat in the future. But you know what? I have stayed faithful to the task. And my success or failure is not ultimately what it is about. It is about my faithfulness. Remember Jesus when he tells the story in Matthew 25. And, and, and he talks about the response of the king. And what is the response of the king? Well done, good and highly successful and efficient and effective servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. You held to the course. Despite the disappointments, despite the failures, you persisted. And you see, the message of Christianity, can we go to the next slide? The message of Christianity is that we are called to finish well. It's actually the prayer of Nehemiah. Remember me for the good. And, and that word good is actually the idea of faithfulness. He said, God, remember me. Not because I restored Jerusalem. Not because I helped rebuild the walls. Not because I helped mobilize the people. Lord, remember me because we were faithful. Remember your people, Israel, because we were faithful. Remember us, Lord. Remember us for these things. And, and, and for all of us, you know, and, and particularly, actually, for those of us who are older, we need to remember that it is about our faithfulness. And, and it's about being faithful to the calling that God has placed on our lives. So we start back after the summer, which I'm not sure when that is, a couple of weeks' time. And uh, it's hard to tell when the summer begins and ends in Scotland, but um, you may have noticed if you're a tourist. And, uh, but, but we will reach a point where we are going to start to look at what it means to be called by God, what it means to be faithful, what it means to work that out. Nehemiah understood that in relation to the house of God. And so what he started to do to express that faithfulness was he did three things. The first thing he did was he guarded the purity of the house of God. You see, the people had become impure through various things that they were doing. They were saying that the house of God didn't really matter. So what if it's taken over by a foreign god? And Nehemiah recognized that the worship of God was paramount. Not, not something that was an optional extra. Not something that was kind of, oh, on my CV, I have some religious interests. <laughs> yeah, I go to church occasionally when I'm not on holiday. Or when I am on holiday, I go to church. But 
he's saying the worship of God is paramount. Remember, the, the Shorter Catechism says, the chief end of humanity is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The chief end. You know, when we wake up on Monday morning, what is your purpose? What is the point of your day? It is to be a worshiper of God. That's what it's about. And if your life is not focused on the worship of God and His service, then, you know, you're probably in a state of idolatry. And I know that sounds, whoa. But that's what the Bible suggests. And actually, it goes on to suggest this. Is, and and uh, again, I've found this through my life. When, when we remove God from the center of our life, you know, it says, worship God and enjoy Him forever. The happiness and enjoyment in our life is robbed from us when we move God from the center. It's weird. You know, you would think, well, if I go off and I pursue all these things and I get invited to the right parties and I buy fast cars and I have a great life and I do all this amazing stuff that I can post on Instagram and all my friends go, wow, that would be amazing. But you know what? It isn't. You just look at the people that are the influencers on Instagram. When God is not at the center we invariably end up miserable in some form or other. We're called to be worshipers of God. And, and, and Nehemiah said to the people, we need to get back to what the worship of God means. It really does matter. That, by the way, means that church really does matter. You know, the... the the reason that we are called to meet together as God's people is not because it's a good thing to do, not even because you'll enjoy it necessarily. It's because you're a worshiper of God, and when you're a worshiper of God, you create priority in relation to that worship. The other thing in relation to the house of God that Nehemiah recognized was that purity really does matter. Purity, I've, uh, over my holiday, I've been working a little bit on a book I'm trying to finish. Whether it will ever happen or not, we'll see. But, but, but certainly I was getting some opportunity during holiday. And, and, uh, and, and one of the chapters in this book is, is, is called Purity is about the way you treat other people. Purity is about the way you treat other people. And I think that's the New Testament vision of Purity. And, and, and when the Bible and when Nehemiah confronts the people in terms of purity, he's using an Old Testament system. But, you know, there's a New Testament message there that the church of God is not only important that we engage with the church, but it is important that we actually engage appropriately with one another. And that we don't let the church get full of loads of rubbish. Do you know that we allow churches to become, and, and it consistently happens. I don't know why. It's like war. I, I, I find myself, again, I was on holiday, so I didn't have much to do, but I find myself thinking, why are we always at war? Do you know why? Why can humanity never seem to evolve beyond war? You would think we would have learned. Surely we would have learned, but no. We don't, and one war follows the next, like the next and the next. 
It's like churches. Have we not learned about the priority of the priority of God's house? That God calls us to relate to one another in a way that honors him and reflects our worship of him. And so often, churches become about our agendas, about our petty whatevers, and not the purity of the house of God. Nehemiah comes and he says, we've got to get this purity thing right. And so what he does is he clears out the storehouse. All that resource that is given to the service of something other than the worship of God and the reflection of that worship of God in the people. And he clears it out. I, uh, I almost get this sense of Nehemiah setting fire to the whole thing, but maybe that's my imagination. You know, burning out the, this corruption from this place. Then he deals with the supporting of the work of the house of God. He recognizes that the resourcing of God's work is important. It's interesting, he then goes to all the Levites who are out in the fields working away, and they should be at church serving, leading worship, doing various other things, but they're out in the fields. And, and he's like, guys, get back. Now, it, it's interesting the way Nehemiah tells this story, um, because he probably should have done the Tyson offerings thing first and then got the Levites back. But he actually goes to them and says, you've got to come back. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure they were going, are you going to pay us? Because uh, Nehemiah at this juncture has not sorted out the Tyson offerings thing. He's just getting the Levites back. And, uh, and maybe he's asking for the Levites to do something, which is, guys, trust God. Let your worship of God be expressed in your commitment to service in the life of the church. And I haven't got the resource yet. But you know what? You be faithful and God will be faithful. And, and so he invites them to come back and they come back and then he starts to sort out the resourcing. You know, part of what we need to do is support the work of God's house. See, in the autumn as we come back, one of the big messages that we're going to have in terms of calling is all of us are called to be part of what God wants to do. And, and you know, we need to resource what God wants to do. I, I, uh, I, uh, my vision for SBC as we go forward is not that we fill this church with lots and lots of Christians. That will be nice. But, you know, that we fill this church with the unchurched. Our, our, our town, our nation, our world desperately needs to know about Jesus. People need to know the transforming power of God. Don't you agree? You know, and as a church, we've got to be part of that. And again, that isn't got to be someone, well, let's have it on the list, evangelism 15's on the list of ministries. It has to be at the heart of what we're about. While this church's series is about reaching unchurched people, about reaching the lost, about communicating the message of the gospel, that's what we should be known for. But you know, in order to do that, we need to resource God's work. You know, we, and, and, and that's you and me. You know, as we come back, we need people. We need people that we're going to start our lunch soon. We need people to help with lunches and to volunteer and say, hey, I'll help out. So you know what? After church, if people come in, they can hang out and get to know folks and maybe come back again next week. I'll help with the coffee. I'll help welcome people. I'll help steward. I'll help with the worship. I'll, I'll help in whatever way I can because I'm committed to seeing the resources and the resourcing of the work of God. I'm going to be faithful. Does that mean everything's successful or perfect or wonderful? No, it doesn't. But it does mean that you're committed to seeing the work of God 
resource. And yes, it does involve your money as well. But you know what? Your money isn't where it starts. It's why I think Nehemiah starts by inviting the Levites to come and do their ministry. And then he says, let's sort the money now. Because it starts with us saying, I'm willing to be part of this. The third thing is, he protects the faith of God's house. You know, he doesn't want just to have a community come. He wants the community to embody the faith. To have, I guess we could talk about ownership of the faith. Or uh, the language is internalize the faith. Have you ever heard that? So, so the idea is that people do things because you force them to do things. Uh, but ideally, you want them to have internalized it. So like my granddaughter, she'll be in later on in a minute. Uh, I mean, I, I want my granddaughter not to do stuff when I ask her to do it because I'm forcing her to do it. So like, give grandpa a kiss. No way. <laughs> give grandpa a kiss or I won't give you chocolate. Oh, okay. You know, <laughs> you, you ever had that? No. You know, it should be, I want to give grandpa a kiss. <laughs> because it's something that, that's part of me. And, and, and protecting the faith, this is what Nehemiah recognized. He recognized it has to be internalized. It, it, you know, the reason we serve, the reason we're faithful is not because the preacher stands up and lambasts us on a Sunday and we all feel guilty as we go home for our lunch, but because inside we've internalized it. Yeah, going to church is important. Yeah, serving in the church is important. Yeah, being part of protecting the life of the church is important. We've internalized it. We own it as a value. Again, maybe we haven't done so much of that in recent years. Nehemiah recognizes protecting the face of the people. The internalization involves two very important things. It involves... Patterns which honor God in our lives. And, and he focuses on the idea of Sabbath. The idea of taking one day in seven. Now again, when I was growing up, I used to get taught about Sundays. And the idea was, oh, you have to have a day of rest. That was before the shops opened. It's just how old I am. And, uh, and, and the idea was you take a day of rest and you spend time with your family and that's what you do on the Sabbath, which is a very healthy thing to do. I believe one of the biggest problems we have, we were praying about ecology, but one of the Sabbath is the first ecological law. It, it, it's kind of saying, don't spend seven days consuming. Take a break. <laughs> Creation needs a break. Uh, replenish rather than just use. We need to replenish. We need to have patterns of replenishment in our lives. We have to have patterns where we nurture our families. We have to have patterns where we nurture ourselves. But all of that, and that's encapsulated in the Sabbath. But the principal thing in the Sabbath is you have to have a pattern in your life where you make space for God. You see, the point of the Sabbath is not, oh, I'm going to go off and play golf this morning because I've got a day off. The idea of the Sabbath was make one day in seven for the worship of God. That's what it is. It's make time for God. That's what the Sabbath is principally about, making time. I don't know about your lives, but so often the patterns of our lives get so skewed and because our parents get so skewed, we don't internalize the things that protect the faithfulness of God's people. 
I was talking with a friend uh, up in Lewis, and uh, wait, I get to go out on a boat and fish, and it's great fun. And uh, so we go off, and you know when you're fishing, because I don't catch many fish, might surprise you, you talk, and you spend time on talking, and so we were just talking. And uh, I, don't, I, I can see why people like fishing, not from the fishing perspective or the fishing's perspective, but from, from the talking perspective, you just talk. And this guy started to talk to me, and a really busy guy. And, and, and he was saying, you know what? He said, I've, I've just recalibrated my day. And he said, now I'm getting up every morning at 6 a.m. And he said, I go out for a walk and I spend time every morning. First thing, you know, I go for a walk and I spend time with God and then I come back and I spend time and I just read the Bible and I journal. And, and then he talked about how he went into the rest of his day. And, and, and do you know what? I thought, uh, it isn't coincidental, it's in the Western Isles where they still have a sense of the Sabbath, but a pattern that honors God. We need lives that have patterns that honor God and make space for him. And, and, and not notionally, you've got to change what you do and how you live. And whether that's one day in seven and making sure you're coming along to church or, or whether that's just starting your day differently or ending your day differently. But maybe journaling, but reading the word, praying, spending time with God and building that pattern. The principle of Sabbath. Finally, he then deals with the whole problem of intermarrying. And, and again, this is to do with the people losing their identity. Because every time they intermarry, he, he talks about King Solomon and all, all the foreign brides that he had. And he said, the problem was Solomon forgot who he was. You see, relationships remind us of our identity. And we derive our identity from our relationships. Uh, I believe the Football League started yesterday. And if you're a Celtic fan or a Rangers fan, you know that if you went and stood in the Rangers' end at Ibrox, it's hard to shout for Celtic. In fact, ill-advised, I'm <laughs> just saying, even in this accepting world. Um, it's ill-advised. Because the relationships that exist confirm identity. They, they create a sense of who you are, and your identity is derived from your relationships. And a sense of being a follower of Jesus is derived from your relationships. And again, as Christians, we need to have those relationships. We need to ensure that we have relationships that confirm and encourage us in our faith so that we go on. Nehemiah understood that the people would never be faithful unless they came to guard the purity of God's house, unless they learned to resource the work of God's house, and unless they learned to protect the face of God's people as they did the things that God called them to do. But finally, he prays. And again, his prayer is very simple. It's not profound. He just says, God doesn't say make us successful. He just says, God, show us mercy. He says, you know what? Even as we go into the future, as Paul recognized in 2 Timothy, you know, things are maybe not always going to be the way we want them to be. So God, we ask that you show us mercy. And then he prays for God's grace and forgiveness. 
And you see, as we go into the future, it's not what we're going to build. It's not even how successful things will be or not. It's going to be about being recipients of God's grace and forgiveness. Places where people can come. Maybe whose lives haven't been successful. Maybe whose lives haven't been perfect or complete. And they will know God's grace and faithfulness. A place where God is worshipped and honoured. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of Nehemiah. And Lord, we don't thank you for Nehemiah's success, but we thank you for the way in which he finished well, for the way in which he finishes by praying for your mercy and for experience of your grace and forgiveness. And Lord, we pray in our lives that we will know your mercy that we will experience and proclaim that grace and forgiveness. We ask this in your name. Amen.